You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. And I do hope that by God's grace, you and your family are staying well. Happy Monday. I know normally I stream on Tuesdays, but hopefully we're making the adjustment to Monday. I want to thank you for joining me for this live stream. And I am live tonight. Uh, Looking forward to bringing you this teaching. Uh, I've been trying to kind of figure it out for a few weeks here, but we finally got it on the calendar. And here we are. Um, I've entitled this, uh, Did Jesus Use a Racial Slur? And really, this was prompted by a recent encounter that Monique and I had uh, at an outreach event. Uh, I think we were actually on the reality tour with our friends at Stand to Reason, and a young man came up to Monique. Uh, she just had just come off the stage from speaking and came right up to her and had this question about, you know, didn't Jesus use a racial slur here in, in uh, Matthew 15 or Mark 7? And um, it was kind of a new question for Monique. It caught her off guard. But I thought, you know what? She's probably not the only person who's wondering about this. And it might make a good topic for a live stream. So we're going to be doing a deep dive into um, Matthew 15 and Mark 7 tonight. But I think more than that, I also think that this is a great example, and I hope we do this well tonight, of how to investigate a question. Like when you hear something being said by an internet uh, YouTube teacher and you're thinking, whoa, like I've never heard this before. How do I think about this? I'm hoping that tonight's conversation will serve as a kind of a, a role model for how to look into something, how to look at the context of the, the claim and, and looking at the, the verse that the person is claiming uh, to, to be interpreting and, and how, to, how to do that, how to do a little bit deeper Bible study, because I think it's not uncommon for people to hear crazy claims about what the Bible teaches but we don't know what to think. And we're told to be discerning, but we often aren't given lessons in how to be discerning, uh, how to figure out if something is true or false. So hopefully tonight, in addition to doing the deep dive on the question of did Jesus use a racial slur, we're also going to be providing a positive role model for how to do good Bible study, because as you know, on this channel, what we're all about is trying to equip and train you uh, to be able to to know what the Bible says, but also to teach others, you know, in your sphere of influence, whether that's your kids or your small group or your women's Bible study or whatever the Lord has, has put in your path and the people he has strategically and supernaturally placed in your life and your sphere of influence. So I want to bring on uh, my friend and fellow Christian apologist, the one and only Amy Hall. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Krista. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Glad to have you here. And uh, I don't know what Monique's doing. She's she's over here making noise. All right. So glad to have you here. I'm super excited that we're finally getting to do this and um, you know, it's, I feel like, you know, 
you're a lot younger than me, but I feel like we're some of the women veterans in apologetics. Like we've been doing this a long time. I, I, w- I would love for people to get to know you. I think that you are, uh, I like to think of Amy as like the utility player of apologetics. Like in baseball, the utility player is the one who can kind of do a little bit of everything. That's Amy. She just knows a little bit about everything and won't steer you wrong. So um, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and help people get to know you and, and how you got interested in apologetics. Well, I was working in the film industry. I worked in the film industry for 10 years. And when I started out there, I was driving around, picking stuff up and I was working for a miniature effects company. So what we did was we built buildings and spaceships and landscapes and things like that. And then we, most of the time we blow them up. That was always really (laughs) exciting. So what I did, especially at the beginning was I drove around and I picked up stuff. So I was doing a lot of driving and I would listen to the Bible answer man. And the Bible answer man had an advertisement for the Biola apologetics program. This is the very first semester they started up in 1997. Wow. And so I decided I wanted to do that. Now, I, I loved thinking about God. I, I love God. I loved talking to people at work and I used to do that all the time. In fact, I had this chair in my office that I called the philosophy chair because people would come in and sit down and then we'd have these conversations. So I thought, yeah, I want to get this degree. I was doing it purely for my own um, enjoyment because I loved it so much and because I, I wanted to be equipped to talk to people. I had no idea that I would end up working in apologetics. So it took me a few years. I did it nights and weekends. I graduated and then I started volunteering at Stand to Reason. I was stuffing envelopes. I did all sorts of things. And then eventually they hired me. And so I've been at Stand to Reason now for 15 years. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And we've been on the reality tour together. I've been Mm -hmm. tagging along uh, with Monique and uh, maybe tell people about what you do on the reality tour, because I think what you do is really, really cool. So what, 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 I, what I do for Stand to Reason generally is uh, I do editing, writing, and podcasting. So on the reality tour, the reality is our youth conference. And so what I do is I have a table and the kids can just come and ask me any question they want to ask. So I'm basically just available the whole conference for anyone who wants to ask questions. It's really fun. <laughs> I love yeah. it. And it's, it's just any, you have a little sign on the table that says, ask ask an apologist. They can just Mm -hmm. ask you any question. And since you are the utility player, you know, a little bit about everything, you know, you can, you can get those answers going. It's fantastic. And I know where they can find the answers if I don't know as deep as they need. So. Well, and that's the thing about being an apologist. It's not always knowing about the details of an answer. Sometimes it's about resourcing the person to Mm -hmm. uh, where they can find the answer or do a deep dive for themselves. So now let's, let's get into our topic tonight, because I think this is going to be really interesting. Um, We're going to start it off with uh, a short TikTok video from a gentleman who calls himself pastor Brandon Robertson. This video went viral last year, um, but I thought it would be great for us to tackle it because 
it, this is a question that does come up from time to time, and it's growing in popularity among more progressive-oriented Christians. And um, I think that it's it's worth um, a, a look. So I'm going to start off by playing the video. It's like a minute, and then we'll begin to break it down and, and kind of comment on it. So Bob's going to play that, and we'll uh, check it out. Did you know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus' response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot in one minute. Writing some notes down so I don't forget. (laughs) There was a lot there to process. So first of all, we should probably you know, explain to people, there might even be some people on the stream that don't even know what TikTok is. Um, you know, and I know that many of the young people on the reality tour are, are on TikTok and that is the world that they swim in. Maybe we should start there, Amy, is like, why is an in, a video like this so influential to young people? Well, I, I'm not on TikTok, so Me I don't either. know how long- I'm old. <laughs> We're probably closer in age than you think, but I, I think that um, you get a certain amount of time. It's, it's a short time, like two or three minutes. You can make your case. There are a lot of people there who have huge followings. I know we have uh, one of our people from Stand to Reason, Tim Barnett, has uh, Red Pen Logic with Mr. B on TikTok. So he does short little videos. But the thing about short videos is it's very easy to say something without explaining it that sounds really cool and it's really easy to give slogans and it's really easy to throw something out there and then everyone it sounds very convincing but there's a lot of background especially in this case that I think needs to be brought out that shows that he actually does not is not correct about his view here yeah and I think that it, it can't be underestimated, though, that somebody that has this kind of a voice where he's a good communicator on um, the impact and influence that that's having on young people, mm-hmm. you know, that if they're getting their theology from TikTok videos, not all TikTok videos have equally sound theology. Watching a, a video from Tim Barnett might not be the same quality as uh, Mr. Robertson here. So um, but this is. The, these are the kinds of voices that are speaking to the younger generation. And I'm grateful for Christian apologists who are going into that space, you know, to preach, to preach the gospel and bring some light. Um, how might we, I always think that a really good technique for when I'm going to look into something is I want to 
start by summarizing the person's argument. Like, okay, this sounds unusual. I've never heard this claim before. So let me first start with a summary in my mind of what is the claim? Um, what are your thoughts about that? How would you summarize Mr. Robertson's claim? What kind of argument is he making here? So his claim here is that Jesus had some racial biases that he, and then he encountered somebody from a different race and he changed his mind and repented of that racism. Now, one thing he said that just struck me just now for the first time is he's making an assumption here about what it means to be human. Because what he says is, what I love about this because it means Jesus is human. So he's equating, he didn't mean human because being sinful is not a, an essential property of being human. Being uh, Sinning is an essential property uh, or it's a, a property of a fallen human being which Jesus was not. So we don't need to see Jesus sin in order to know that he was human. We know that he was human because he was incarnated. He has a human body. He has a human soul. He's, he's truly human, but he's not a fallen human. So we should not expect to see him sin. Also, I'm always kind of surprised that why are you following Jesus if he was a sinner? I don't really understand. I don't know. I'm not familiar with his theology or anything else he's done. So I'm not he sure. Kind he kind of falls short that. of calling Jesus a sinner, but he does say that Jesus repented of his racism. And right, if racism yeah. is a sin, you know, it almost seems to inductively follow that he would seem to think that Jesus is less than deity or less than perfect. I'm not really sure how he breaks all that down, but I think it's, right. it's helpful to notice you know, as we're summarizing his argument, hmm, I have a question here. What is what's happening? And he he makes some claims about the passage, which I think when we go through it, I'll respond to this. But a couple of things he says, he says that that she spoke truth to power. Mm, yeah. And that she said she deserved to receive something from Jesus. So and that's how she changes his mind, because she says. I just, I deserved that. So she was basically asserting herself in front of Jesus. And I think both of those are false, but we'll get to that when we talk more about the past. Yeah. I think it's interesting also, as we're just summarizing his argument, that when he says a phrase like speak truth to power, that Jesus did the work and that he repented of his racism, these are words that we are hearing out there that are inspired you know, by the critical theory framework. And so mm -hmm. I, I have to make a preliminary assumption that he's trying to position Jesus as a type of social justice warrior, as someone that we ought to emulate. Uh, do you think I'm going too far with that? No, I think you're right about that. I, I think he's definitely coming to this passage with that framework. I don't think he's getting this framework from the passage, as we will see when we go through it. I think he's come in with this and he's looking for some justification for it. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why bring this onto Jesus exactly. That, that's where I'm unclear because I'm just not familiar with him or, or what else he says about Jesus. Yeah. But he's definitely coming in with that framework. 
Yeah. So maybe this is a good point to bring out like the difference between exegesis and eisegesis, because sometimes we hear these words sort of floating around in the church, but we might not really know what they mean. I mean, um, exegesis is when you're drawing out the meaning of the passage from the text itself. You're trying to get at the author's meaning and really trying to discern what did the original author mean. Eisegesis is the idea of you're bringing your modern framework to the text and then reading the text through that framework or through that set of lenses Mm -hmm. in order to reinforce the framework. Now, Mr. Robertson, I've watched an, a number of his videos, and, and he, I, I th- he would clearly put himself in the progressive Christian category. Um, and I, but I think that, you know, from his vantage point as a progressive Christian, he would probably want us to believe that he is actually exegeting the text. He thinks that this stuff is in the text itself. And I think you and I would probably argue, I think you're bringing your framework to the text. But, um, I, yeah, you know, I think that's something to be aware of, that we might say it's eisegesis, but he might try to make a case that it's exegesis. That's true. But you know what? Sometimes I've also had progressives. I think of this, I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. But he went through that whole book and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, okay, you're making these claims that, that you claim are true about Jesus. And I don't like the Bible seems to, to go against what you're saying here. And it's not until you get to the end of the book where he says that he's getting this from the time he spent meditating in front of Jesus. And that is his idea mm-hmm. of Jesus. Not, not even everything said about Jesus in the Bible, because he rejects some of those things. So ultimately what it, what it comes to, to the truth comes to be that he is actually imagining these things based on his conception of what he thinks Jesus should be like. And so even though this whole time he's been bringing the Bible into it, he had this in the back of his mind, you find out at the end of the book So I think a lot of times, if you really dig down into what they think is the source, they will say, you know, they, they, they're not coming to the Bible, thinking of it as having the highest authority and inerrant and all that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely not in the same way that we would on a more Mm -hmm. conservative side of the spectrum. All right, let's get into the passage. I I sent it to Bob um, ahead of time. So we're going to read the Matthew 15 version. Um, and the reason I want to do this and read the whole thing is because again, Amy and I are not only talking about how we answer this question of, did Jesus use a racial slur? Amy and I are also trying to model for you how to do good Bible study. What kinds of questions should you ask when you hear a claim? What's the process? So kind of our first step in that process was, all right, what exactly is the claim? How can I summarize it? What are the major pieces of it? Really, the second step is go read the passage. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no <laughs> substitute for that. And I always tell my students when I'm teaching them how to interpret the Bible, that to go read the whole passage in context, or as Amy's uh, boss and, and, you know, one of my former seminary classmates, Greg Kokel, would say, never read a Bible verse. In other words, always 
read a verse in context, read backward and forward and make sure that you, you know what's happening. So our story starts in Matthew 15, chapter, or, um, chapter 15, verse 21. So I'm going to read that for us and um, then we'll go from there. So I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Okay, so that's, that's the chunk that this, this um, discussion belongs to. Um, Amy, just as we're, we're getting started here, let's just kind of start at verse 21 and work our way through it. Right at the beginning, like, why does Matthew give us a geography lesson? Like, why is he telling us that Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon? Okay, there are a lot of reasons for this. And there's a lot of background information yeah. that needs to come in here because not only should we look at the passage, but we need to look at the whole Bible. So we understand the history of how they got there, what's going on, what God's doing. All of these things play into this story because the first thing you need to understand is the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. So way back when, when God called Abraham, he eventually took them to Egypt. He had them isolated in Egypt because they were, the Egyptians didn't want to be around them because they, they were shepherds and they thought that was unclean. And then eventually he moves them out. He gives them the law and he separates them from the cultures around them. And the reason why he does this, he doesn't do this for racial reasons. He does this for moral reasons. God's purpose from the beginning, from Genesis, he, he said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that is the promise made at the beginning of the story that God is now going to bring about by taking, the, by taking Abraham and creating a nation and giving them certain laws that would build up their their society so that it would reflect God to the world and it would create this culture where eventually Jesus would come and die for our sins. So now, when you're talking we, about Abraham, you're going all the way back to Genesis back. 12 verses one to three, you know, where, right. where God's kind of giving that promise to Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. So if we're going to understand what's happening in Matthew and Mark, we've, kind of got to go first go right all the way back to the what's called the abrahamic covenant god making that covenant of 
where the Jewish people are going to come from. Because what we need to remember is that there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles and there was a purpose for it, but it's all under the umbrella of ultimately bringing a blessing to the whole world. So that's how we kind of have to view this separation. So the separation through the law, because they weren't allowed to mix with the other cult- other cultures, because creating a culture is a huge deal, changing the way people think about the world. And I don't think we really appreciate this because we have been so saturated in biblical ideas for a long time in our culture, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it takes time to create a mindset in a people. And when the other people groups have a completely different mindset that could cause issues, like they have the idol worship, they have um, sacrificing children, they have all sorts of things that God did not want the Israelites to do. So God is separating them out in order to build up this culture. But the important thing to remember is it was not a racial issue. It was a moral issue. In fact, when, when God has the Israelites drive out the Canaanites, he says, if you, if you become like them, if you become like the people I'm judging, who, by the way, God waited 400 years until their sin was great enough to be punished. He says, I'm, I'm removing them from the land. But if you become like them, he says, I, as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. So it was a promise that they're removed because of their sin and you will be removed because of your sin. And in fact, that is what happens during the Babylonian exile. So they don't avoid the, um, the people, other people groups, and they do sin and they do have problems. But ultimately, and I want to I put this in perspective in one other way. Even in the law, even though they were separating from the nations around them, we need to understand what God said about these other people. You know, did God, was he doing this because he hated them? Well, no, here are a couple verses from the law. Um, Deuteronomy ten nineteen: show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And he also says, if a stranger, and this is in Exodus 12, if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like the native, a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. So they were able to become part of this Mosaic covenant. If they were circumcised, they could become a part of it. They weren't excluded because of their ethnicity. The issue was cultural and moral, not ethnicity. So we see this all the way through. And that is, that's the issue of the separation between the Jew and the Gentiles. Again, under the whole umbrella of God working out his grace but in the meantime, they're separated from each other for the purpose of a culture and uh, morality and, cre- and eventually bringing about the Messiah. So there we have already, you know, an important difference between what often social justice people will do and what the Bible is doing in this race issue, like conflating that the, the woman, the Canaanite woman, well, what's happening here is that she's a racial minority. Well, that's... That's to put a modern framework, a modern issue on top of the Bible. That's not what was happening here. What was happening here was, yes, there was a separation between 
Jews and Gentiles, but it was one of, of covenant. It was mm-hmm. one of covenant relationship. And that was expressed through different cultural practices, circumcision, feasts, sacrifices, all of that. But, but the issue here was not, we should not take our modern concept of race and then put that on top of the text. We have to be a little more sophisticated than that and understand that what we're talking about is a covenant and who's mm-hmm. in a covenant relationship with God. And that is why we have to go all the way back to Abraham. And a covenant by God's grace, by the way. Yes. The, the God chose Abraham by his grace. It wasn't because of anything special about them. It was because of his grace. So that is another part of it. He just had not opened up the new covenant yet, which we will get to. Yeah. And there's one other point I want to make about the location. And this I, I got from Mike Winger. He mentioned this, and I hadn't noticed this before. But what he says is that he points to Luke 4, 24 through 30, where Jesus says this. And right after he faces opposition, this is what Jesus says. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So what we see here is Jesus is referencing this time in the past when the people of Israel were rejecting God and the prophet went to Sidon. And so now what we have is the same thing where Jesus faces opposition. And then where does he go? He goes to Sidon and he talks with this woman there. That may be a connection. I, I, it's hard to believe that's really a coincidence, the way this is set up. Mm-hmm. But I think what is being pointed out here is that ultimately it's the faith that's important here. And we'll get into this a little yeah. more in a second. I want to um, have Bob show a little map so that people can see what we're talking about, because one of the most important um, things that I'm always trying to impress on beginning Bible students is that whenever a geographical location is mentioned by a auth- biblical author, usually it's there for a reason, and it's good to inquire. So when you see this map up there toward the north, you see in the, 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 the um, Sea of Galilee area, you know, you see Capernaum and Nazareth, and these are all Jewish areas. But then if you go up, you know, northwest, you see Cy- um, um, Tyre and Sidon. And this is the area that Jesus goes up to. And so he's leaving kind of the more Jewish area, and he's going into a more Gentile area. And so it's interesting that Jesus withdraws from the Jews to um, go up there to the Gentile area. It's also interesting, this little detail that Matthew includes in his account, 
that this was a Canaanite woman. And that should hearken us back to the thing that you were mentioning, Amy, is that it's, it's taking us back to the Mosaic covenant of the Canaanites. And so as readers, we're supposed to be on alert. Oh, Jesus is leaving the Jewish area to go to the Gentile area. And it's connecting us to Israel's past of the Canaanites and, you know, possibly the, the widow in Elijah's ministry. So Mm -hmm. that's another important principle of Bible study is looking at connections between the old and and new Testament. So those are some things to, to think about. Um, I think that as Jesus is, is going there into that Gentile area, wanting us to, to see the significance of that, let's start to unpack a little bit more about Jesus's response to her, because, you know, that's, that starts to get us into this accusation that he mm-hmm. used a racial slur. Okay, so now we'll talk about Jesus. and. I actually want to start back a little bit earlier in Matthew, because I okay. think there are some key passages that we need to keep in mind so we can understand what he's doing here. And the first one is in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And this is the passage where the centurion comes to him and wants Jesus to heal his servant. Now, remember, the centurion is not Jewish. So we're, we're in a very similar situation here. So this is how Jesus responds after, well, I should summarize this quickly. The centurion shows a great amount of faith because he says, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy of seeing you. And he's showing his humility there. I'm not worthy of you coming to my house. You can heal from far away as well as you can heal at my house. So Jesus says, you know, this is, this is amazing faith. So here's what he says after that. And I think this is really important. Now, when Jesus heard this, the response of the centurion. He marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So right here, what we see already is that exact same imagery of the table. Just as he has that imagery of the table with the Canaanite woman, he's using the same imagery here. And here in chapter eight, he's saying because of people's faith, because of the faith of Gentiles, they will come from east and west and they will not just get the crumbs from under the table. They will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because of your faith. So Matthew in telling the story or giving this account, he's already setting up the idea that Jesus is, is, is going to say that faith is more important than ritual. And so um, that's key. That's already been set up in chapter eight. And we already know Jesus is willing to help Gentiles and that Gentiles will get into the kingdom ahead of of the Jews who do not have faith in him. So that is where I want to start. Next, we want, we see another place where we see Jesus's relationship with the Gentiles in Matthew 12. And this is verses 17 through 21. 
And it talks about Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of bringing light to the Gentiles. And here's what it says. He's at first, it says that, you know, Jesus healed people. And then it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well-pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So what I'm trying to set up here is that Jesus is not going to be surprised by what happens with the Canaanite woman. He's already, he's aware of, of what the goal is here. And the goal is to bring a blessing to the Gentiles. We mentioned that back from Genesis, the promise made to Abraham. And he's aware that that's where all this is heading. So I think that is also um, context we need to keep in mind. Now we get to chapter 15. And before we even get to, to her story, we come on really important things happening at the beginning of the chapter. So right at the beginning of the chapter, he's talking to the Pharisees. And what he says is about the Pharisees is, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. So he, what we're going to see here in this chapter is a contrast between the Pharisees and the woman. The Pharisees are, they're, they're following these laws. They're trying to do these rituals, but they don't actually have faith. They don't actually love God. They're not actually following God. They've set up these other rules that they have to follow. And so Jesus is already setting up the idea, right? Okay, right at the beginning of this chapter where Matthew's writing, he's setting up the idea that being merely born into the covenant isn't the key. What's key is faith. And so then you get a little farther into the chapter, into verse 11, and it's, he says, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. So he's talking about, you know, the Pharisees think if they follow all these rules, that will give them righteousness. But Jesus is saying, no, it's not that you're following these rules, that that's the key thing. Your sin is actually coming out of you. You are sinners. And he says again, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. And this leads directly into the story where, G where, where Matthew is going to contrast the Pharisees with the woman, the Pharisees who have the, they don't have a heart for God but they have the law and the Canaanite woman who doesn't have the law, but actually has faith in Jesus as she should. So this whole contrast has been set up. He goes, Matthew goes right into the story here. And now we come to the, the actual passage here. Now, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I just want to like make a couple of observations because what you're really pointing out here is a very important practice. That I want to encourage people to do when you're studying the Bible, and it can't emphasize this enough, is I think that one of the, the, the great difficulties, because somebody said in the chat on YouTube, um, the Bible is hard to interpret sometimes. And, and that, that is absolutely true. But what can be of help 
is when we have read the context forward and backwards, but also when we know the big story of the Bible, the way Mm -hmm. that Amy is displaying for us, because what we don't want to do is just interpret a Bible verse and just zoom in for that, that close up. Rather, we got to zoom out a little bit to a mid shot. And then we got to zoom all the way out to the wide shot and then come back to the verse because the, the Bible is many books and it's also tells one big story. And we have to kind of know how to go both places. And in order to do that, you do have to understand something about covenants, um, but also having a skill of reading through the book of Matthew a few times. When I teach Bible study skills, when, we, when we're going through a book of the Bible, what I have my students do is by the time we've gone through our whole study on, on a, the Bible, on a book of the Bible, they've read through that book several times. And they start noticing, oh, this story here sounds like it has a parallel with this story here. And so when Amy is highlighting this issue of like the centurion and that healing and connecting it with this, with this other healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Well, oh, look, they're both Gentiles. There's some commonalities here. Now, that might seem like she's doing some kind of magic tricks. But what you have to know is that Amy is a student of the Bible. And part of being a student of the Bible is reading through, you know, a book of the Bible, maybe multiple times until you start seeing where a verse, a section, a larger section fit into the overall flow of the book. And this is vital if we're going to properly interpret the Bible. And this is why, you know, one minute TikTok videos might, <laughs> might not be the best way of going about this, this discussion. But um, Amy is, is doing a very nice job here of showing us the important, uh, importance of the background and, um, you know, so, all right, now, so now we're, we've kind of laid a lot of really good groundwork. Now let's, I think we're going to kind of zoom in here a little bit on, on the Syrophoenician woman. But right now what we have um, is call, she's calling our attention to the fact that Jesus's primary ministry is to Jews, but we have these little highlights of Gentiles along the way, but that's the same pattern as we had in the Old Testament. With a, it was primarily to the descendants of Abraham, but there were these little highlights of, Jew, of Gentiles along the way. People like Ruth the Moabite or Rahab or these foreigners that would sojourn um, with Israel in the Exodus. Okay, they're Amy, also, why don't you pick it up there? There are also direct prophecies. I mentioned the one in, uh, from Isaiah, you know, yes. he will be a light to the Gentiles. Yeah. So, I, I, so a few... Uh, observations uh, before I, I give my thoughts on what I think Jesus was doing here. Some observations about the woman. The first thing is she calls Jesus son of David, which is a messianic title. So she's already acknowledging him as the Messiah, as the, the one in authority. Um, she's not, she's, she's submitting to that. Remember she has a different religion altogether. I'm assuming, I mean, she's not, she's not a Jew. So she, she has a different religion. She's not part of the covenant. The, the Gentiles are still not part of the covenant yet. Jesus hasn't opened that up yet. 
But when you think about that, you think about the faith that she had in Jesus, not only in his title, but also in his character, because she trusted that when she came to him, he would show her grace, even though she knew she's not part of the covenant. So she, she knew, well, Jesus rightly came to the Jews first. That was the plan, as you mentioned. And so when Jesus says, you know, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs, you know, Brandon says that she speaks truth to power, but she actually doesn't. She actually says, yes, Lord. She humbles herself in acknowledgement that she is not part of the covenant, that she's, that he did not, um, that, that Jesus came to fulfill the promises given to the Jews. So she's not part of that, but she still has faith in him and faith in his grace. Now that is a huge, that's a huge amount of faith. And she's not coming there saying, Hey, I deserve this. That's it's the opposite of what he said. It's not that she deserves it. She is humbling herself. Unlike the Pharisees, you know, this reminds me of the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee comes in and says how great he is. And then the tax collector is beating his breast and saying how he is a sinner. And then the, the, the tax collector goes away justified because of his humble submission to God and his repentance. So here we have a woman who is humbling herself, not saying do this because I deserve it, but do it because I, I desire to receive from you and I recognize you as the Messiah and I'm coming to you because you, you are gracious. So I, that's all we need to know there um, in terms of kind of details about what's going on with her. And then I, I want to give two more bits of context before I come to Jesus' words. And these are from different books. So now I'm going outside of Matthew because sometimes, especially in the Gospels, you get different things from different gospels you can get things from the letters you can kind of get an idea of what was going on theologically in paul's letters so what what jesus says in john 12 20 through 25 what happens is um well i'll just i'll just read the passage now there were some greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast these then came to philip who was from Bethsaida of galilee and began to ask him saying sir we wish to see jesus Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, maybe that's, you know, if you're listening and you're like, well, I don't, what is he talking about? What he's talking about, when these Gentiles come to him and they're coming in faith, Jesus says, okay, it's time. It's time for me to die so that I can, uh, I can break apart the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And I can bring Gentiles into the covenant. I, they can both, Jews and Gentiles, be united in me and I can reconcile them to God. And he's saying this because now at this point, the Gentiles are coming. Now it is time to initiate the new covenant and bring in the Gentiles. So what we see is all the way through Jesus's life, you see this movement towards 
the acceptance of Gentiles. He's not against the Gentiles. Uh, for more details on the breaking down of the dividing wall, that's in Ephesians 2, 11 through 8, but I'll, I'll let you read through that on your own. But, okay, so what is Jesus doing? <laughs> now, first of all, we know Jesus isn't against helping the Gentiles because we've already seen it. We've seen it in Matthew with the centurion. We also know that when he says it's not good to give the children's bread to the dogs, what he's saying is not, um, it's not his view because otherwise, if he really thought it wasn't good, he wouldn't have done it. Right. So he's saying, and I, I got this insight from Greg Kogel, but so what I think he's doing is he's, he's being instructive. He's illustrating what he's making a point to the Pharisees. Okay. Just as we saw coming up into this chapter, he's saying that it's not the rituals or even having the law that matters. It's your faith. So what he's doing is he's responding to her as the Pharisees would expect him to respond. You know, I'm, I, I came only to give the, the, to the lost sheep of Israel, which he did at first, of course, but the Pharisees stopped there and Jesus wants to take it farther. He's going to take it farther. So he draws out the woman's faith by giving this expected answer. And then he commends her faith. And what he's done is he's illustrated by contrasting the, the Pharisees, the Jews who were in, in covenant with him, but falling away from that covenant because they had no faith. And he's contrasting that with the woman who had faith. And what we see is that the, the faith is what's important here. Now, I also want to point out, Jesus is not saying, he's not saying you are a dog. Okay. He's not saying that he's using this as an illustration and he's saying something that's actually fair. The children of Israel are in the covenant and she is outside the covenant. So he's illustrating that with this image of giving the bread to the dogs. He's not actually saying to her, you know what? You're a dog. That's a completely different thing. So I think keeping all those things in mind, what he's doing is he's giving her the expected answer and he's drawing out her faith. And then he's commending her for her faith and revealing to everyone through the juxtaposition of these two incidents. He's revealing to them what is important and also his coming um, opening up of the new covenant to Gentiles. Yeah, I think that it, it really begins because Jesus is, he has so many tasks. He's got to instruct the 12 on and, you know, he's trying to demonstrate for them the, the kingdom and he's trying to uh, explain to them, you know, how he's a Messiah, demonstrating the evidence for that, but also instructing them on the long-term vision of opening the covenant up mm -hmm. more uh, for the Gentiles. But it's really not going to click in their heads until we they get to the book of Acts, and then they start putting all the pieces together, you know, and reflecting back, oh, this. Now, now I understand what Jesus was doing here. But in this incident and like the incident with the centurion and a few others, when you run into those um, 
those vignettes in the Gospels, it, it's supposed to remind the reader of God's long-term vision to bring the Gentiles in as full participants into the covenant. This is not a race conversation. This is a covenant conversation. And so, again, we don't want to um, put our modern framework on top of the text. We want to be very careful about that. And I think that that is a, a foundational flaw in Mr. Robertson's um, analysis of, of this text. And I think that Amy did a very nice job of, of pulling all of these these strands together because um, in teaching us the importance of, of, of looking at all the context, near context, farther context, and covenantal context, sometimes you need all of those strings in order to figure out, you know, what a verse means. Um, any additional thoughts that you want to share with us about this passage? I think ultimately, um, we we need to start from the place whenever we're trying to uh, interpret something. We're starting from our understanding of who Jesus is, right? So what we need to do is start with the text, understand who Jesus is, and then try to work it out from there. Try to work out what's being said in light of this knowledge of Jesus as a as a perfect, um, you know, he's he's truly God and he's truly man. So it, it's just it, it kind of blows my mind. I don't really know even how to respond when somebody just can so glibly say, you know, Jesus sinned or Jesus was racist or Jesus was whatever. Um, Anyway, so we, we talked about coming at this from, you know, specific biblical things, but also the theological bigger things also help us to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Because if Jesus was, was racist here, that is the end of Christianity. I mean, maybe, maybe he can teach us a few things about how to be nice to each other, but he can't die for our sins. Right. If he has his own sins to atone for, he's not. He's not divine if he's sinning. So there are a lot of, you know, all that, all that theology comes into play here. Yeah. And I think that, you know, kind of the bottom line is this very important contrast between the Pharisees who have the appearance of being on the inside of the covenant. They have the appearance of having um, the inside track because they're part of that Abrahamic covenantal line the woman seems like she's she's so far out of the covenant like she doesn't even have a chance at having you know a relationship with the father and yet what we see in the the pharisees is that they're actually not in the messianic covenant they're they because they don't combine God's grace and the covenant with faith. They don't combine it together. Instead, you know, they're, they're missing the most important ingredient, which is that belief and trust that Jesus is the Messiah. Whereas this woman as an outsider to the covenant 
She doesn't have the inside track. She doesn't look like an insider because she's not connected to Abraham. She actually has the, the insider component of having the faith. And so even though she's far from God's revelation of the covenant in scripture, in a way, she's closer to the covenant because she has the faith. And I think the bottom line here is that what Jesus is saying is no matter there's, there's coming a time where in a time of transition that no matter who you are, who your parents are, where you're from, um, the true children of Abraham will be those who combine it with faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and that is God's long-term vision of, of where he's going with this. Yeah. Can you imagine how, how shocking that must have been, you know, when you have to do is look at when Peter, you know, it took God giving him a vision of the sheep being lowered down with the, the unclean items for him to be willing to go and see Cornelius. It was such a, a change in mindset because God had drummed it into them so hard that they were not to let these other cultures um, draw them away from him. So instead, he's now drawing them into the covenant. I mean, it's such an amazing thing. You know, you reminded me of a verse in uh, Romans 12. Uh, this is, again, going after that juxtaposition between the Pharisees and the woman. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, as though it were by works. So that's, this is all what was going on. That's a great summary. That's a great landing place for us. Uh, thank you for doing this conversation with us. I, I hope that people found it helpful. I want to... Um, get people connected to you. I also want to get them connected to some other resources. I know Stand Your Reason has an awesome uh, course called the Bible and Fast Forward that um, people can go through the whole Bible. I have a similar course that's called uh, God's, God's Big Story, um, where I lead people through all the covenants. Um, it's almost like Greg and I had the same professors. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so people can, can check that out go to God's big story. You can, uh, go on theologymom.com backslash classes and, uh, check that out. You can also check out resources at stand to reason. Amy, how can people follow you and follow the ministry? So our website is at str.org. I have a lot of articles there. We have, I mean, probably any topic you can think of, we've written something about, I also do a podcast with Greg Kokel, and it's called hashtag STRask, all one word. You can find that on our website. You can find it on iTunes. That's a shorter podcast. It's about 20 minutes long, and we just answer questions that people send on Twitter. And, um, oh, I, I do want to mention, too, a specific post. If you're looking for something on the topic of knowing your, Bi your Bible, I have a post on there called A Long-Term Plan to Know Your Bible, because this is absolutely key to doing any apologetics, to responding to any of these claims um, and hearing things you've never heard before. 
a long-term plan to know your Bible, I give some ideas about how you can start to know your Bible better. Very good. All right. We have one question that came in on YouTube late. And so I'm going to go a little bit over time here and see if we can pop this up there, Bob. It's from our friend, Susanna, who used to uh, be more of a progressive and has been in a, a journey of, of really deep Bible study the last few years. Um, she is asking, does the use of the word dog refer to something specific like a euphemism for Gentiles? Uh, do you know anything about that, Amy? I'm not sure I know for sure. Um, what, I, what I have heard, I don't, I don't uh, read Greek, so I can't for sure, or Aramaic or whatever that part is in, but I have heard that the word there is for like a pet dog, not like a, um, a derogatory word for a dog. It's more like a pet dog. Now, one, you know, I, and I did look that up because Mike Winger said that in, in his video. And um, I do think that he's probably right about that. There are two different words for dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this context, clearly, I think we're talking about a pet because it's under the table. And um, pets would be a a signal of wealth. Like the average person at that time isn't going to have pets in their house. That would be a sign of wealth. And so this it kind of think of like, you know, it's kind of a spoiled bougie dog. Uh, and, uh, you know, dogs, I think there's a couple of references to dogs in Revelation, which seem to be more like feral dogs, wild dogs. And it's an it's analogous to an unbeliever. And so um, in that broad sense, you could say it's a it's a reference to to Gentiles because often the Gentiles were looked upon as being broadly unbelievers. But, you know, at this point, especially at this point in the covenant conversation, but I don't think, I don't know for sure if it was common, like a common practice Mm -hmm. for Jewish people to call Gentiles dogs as a slur. I haven't been able to confirm that. And sometimes when you look into these things of what the cultural practices were, there can be varying opinions on all sides. And so I'm always a little hesitant to bank mm-hmm. everything on that issue, but that's just me. Paul uses this word, or I don't know if it's exact same word. He might've used a different term for dogs, but he does say in Philippians three, two and three, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so there the irony is it's those who were following the law who were against the covenant with God. So if that if that term was used to to refer to people who are against the covenant, then that would be ironic. But it would also be ironic Jesus using that word because in the end, she was the one who had the faith. And so here he's using he's using that word. But it again, he's drawing out the distinction between the Pharisees and and her using that word as the Pharisees would when in actuality they were the ones who were against the covenant with Jesus and she wasn't. So yeah, yeah that's that, yeah. And I think it would have to be an assertion that would have to be proven that mm-hmm. it was a racial slur, but even if it 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 was a 
a term that Jews used for Gentiles in this context, it clearly seems to be more about the covenant relationship than anything else. So anyways, great discussion, Amy. Thank you so much for doing this. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you, Krista. It was fun. Yeah. So, all right, my friends, that is it for tonight. And once again, I want to get you connected. If you want more resources on how to study the Bible for yourself, just go to theologymom.com backslash classes. I've got a class on how to interpret the Bible. I've got another class on God's big story where you can um, learn about all the covenants and a lot of the things that Amy and I were talking about tonight. So I hope you found this conversation helpful in giving you some broad principles for how to study the Bible. And um, I want to encourage you that when you hear crazy claims on the internet and on TikTok theology, that you just take a deep breath, pause, go look it up and do a deeper dive into it. And, um, The Lord will meet you in that. I am confident. So thank you so much. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.